for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. All right, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 14. I'm going to read for us verses 1 and 2, and then we'll move forward. Moses records in verse 1, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of of the earth. Let's stop there for just a moment. Actually, for today, that's our text for today. Our series is entitled Shaped. Shaped to live in God's glory in the world. We're laboring for a wholehearted allegiance through a whole life obedience for our church. And so as we talk about this series, we've seen, I'm going to give you a really brief summary of the first 13 chapters to bring us to where we are today. Moses leads the people out of Egypt and he brings them into the promised land. God gives them the law. They come to the edge of the Jordan River, but they rebel because 10 of the 12 spies come back and go, those people are big. And they get scared, they rebel. Moses leads them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so they come back at the end of this really 38 and a half or so years of wandering in the wilderness. They're on the edge of the Jordan River. And Moses gives them his last final words before he will pass away and they will cross into the new land. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is about in its historical concept. These are his final sermons to God's people And Moses' purpose in preaching these sermons is to shape with purpose God's people for their new life in the land. He continually reminds them of their salvation by God's mighty hand. He says, God's already saved you. He brought you out of Egypt. He commands them and he instructs them in how to live in a relationship with God. He encourages them and he challenges them uh, to never look back, to to not veer to the right or to the left from what God's word says. Don't add to it, don't take away from it is what he's saying. But, But rather continue to move forward by trusting in God. And then Moses orients the people to God in true worship. And over the last two weeks, this is where we've been in chapter 13. He talked about true worship in the first part of chapter, or excuse me, in chapter 12. And then when he ends chapter 12 and moves into chapter 13, he talks about the threats that they will encounter in the land to this true worship. And the reason we were talking about true worship is because God said to them, there is a place where I have put my name and my habitation, or my name and my presence and there you will worship me and we saw that true worship is more than just a gathering and a singing and preaching and the things that we so often reduce our idea of worship down to today but rather the real idea the concept that the scriptures teach as true worship is relationship with God knowing God being known by God, living a life of stewardship, of faithfulness with all of this life, and then living for God, a life of mission. This is the concept of worship in its totality that Scripture gives to us, and that's what he does. He orients them to God, and he warns them against the threats in the land. And then, chapter 14, where we find today, verses 1 and 2, he begins to prepare them that he will instruct them for what it means for faithful living. But right in the midst of this, he wants to provide for them an understanding, not only of everything they've been taught, but of everything he's about to say. He begins to instruct them, and and he reminds us, that Christians, that that we must remember that our true identity, that, that, that if we're going to live in faithful obedience to God, it will demand that we understand who we are, In Christ Jesus. And so that's why he begins in worship when he teaches the people how to live. 
Because he says this, that, that, that he, doesn't, like, he doesn't say this, but this is what he is saying by what he teaches. That who or what you worship will always determine the way you live. Who or what you worship will always determine the way you live. And so right worship of God leads us to a true identity in Jesus. Right worship of God leads us to a true identity of life in Jesus. And so we will see a right understanding of our true identity in Jesus Christ today. So he begins in verse 1 reminding the people of the instruction that he's already given to them. In chapter 7, verse 6, he gave them these verses. He said these words to them, but he was just introducing them and explaining them. Now he is reminding them. Because everything that's about to follow for the next 13 chapters in the book of Deuteronomy will hinge off of these two verses. Everything that he instructs them for how they are to live in the land will be based on one thing. And that is, do the people understand who they are because of what I have done for them? That's what it depends on. Will they worship me in a right way? So that they can come to understand their identity in me and live out that worship? Or will they forsake me in obedience and ultimately deny me in identity? It's a very powerful, powerful hinge moment that he's leading to here. You see, remembering God means never forgetting who you are because of him. Remembering God means never forgetting who you are Christian because of him and so he proclaims this to begin you are the sons of the Lord your God verse 1 you are the sons of the Lord your God false worship and religion religion never dares to make a statement like this never dares what God says about his people is as unique as what he promises to and proclaims that he has done for his people. You see, what God does is he meets us in our rebellion with his redeeming power and through his salvation makes his enemies his own children. That's what salvation is all about. And so in response, God's people do not respond as other idol worshipers do. There's kind of, a, kind of an odd sentence. The second sentence of verse 1 is a little odd. It says, you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. And really what most commentators believe that Moses is referring to there is one of the more extreme examples of how idolaters, false worship, would respond to death in the new land. Most of the Canaanites and the other uh, uh, peoples that were in the land, they responded to death in very, shall we say, gory negative ways because it was something they feared. It was something that they didn't have any answers for. And God simply saying to them, don't, don't practice your mourning and your grieving the way that the idolaters in the land practice their mourning and grieving. If you remember last week when he was talking about threats to true worship, he also identified one of the extreme threats there. He said that the false worshipers in the new land actually sacrificed their children to the false gods as a form of worship. And so he's making a point by drawing the contrast between false worship and true worship. And again, he's making a point here in verse 1 by drawing a contrast between true identity in God and his promise to his people and the false identity that people find when they worship false gods. Because remember, what you worship determines what? How you live. Who you become. That's what he's telling to us. And for us, friends, God's people need not live in fear of anything over which God has power and authority. And that is all things. That is all things. Moses expands on God's powerful work for his people in verse 2. He says, for you are people holy to the Lord. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his what? Treasured possession. If you ever want to know what God thinks of his people, right there is a quick answer to help you know. They're not just somebody he deals with, puts up with, but rather we are to him his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God's covenant promise reminds his people that he has a purpose for them. We're not existing 
that God has given us a purpose in this life. And so here's where I want us to point today, that Jesus transforms people to live for God's glory on the earth. Jesus transforms people to live for God's glory on the earth. You see, in the Old Testament, God shaped his people by his promise that came through the law and through the prophets. If I had to tell you what my plan is in preaching and why I started in Deuteronomy, it's because I want you to understand this, church. I want you to understand that the first two-thirds of the Bible means something for us as God's people. That the Old Testament has value for us. That the promise of God that was given from Genesis 1-1 through the end of the Old Testament continued in Matthew 1-1 and carries us all the way beyond Revelation 21 when the Bible ends but God's work continues. That the Old Testament is as valuable for us today as it has ever been. And if we refuse the Old Testament, the New Testament will have no meaning for us because we won't understand the foundation, the narrative with which it has come to us. That's why it's so important for us. Because in the Old Testament, God was doing among His people what God continues to do for His people today. He's shaping them through the law and through the prophets. You see, the law expanded the truth and the glory of God's promise to show the people His holiness and and to show the people their unrighteousness and to point them to the Messiah that God had promised for them. And then in the New Testament, God's promise came As a person, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I want you to see how God saves us from sin by the work of Jesus Christ. I want to do this little exercise with you. And one of the things I want to do is I just want to, without expounding on them or giving, offering any really commentary, I just want you to see what God's Word says through eight simple statements about what has happened for us and to us because of salvation in salvation because of Jesus Christ so first of all here we go because of sin we are cursed and condemned but Jesus becomes our curse and removes our condemnation Galatians 3:13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then Romans 8 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is our salvation, friends. Look at the second one. We exist because of sin in the dominion of darkness, but Jesus brings us into light. Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. I read it in our prayer time this morning. I'll remind you of it again. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Some of you may have walked in here today wondering if God loved you, wondering if God cared anything about you, wondering if God would have anything for you. And might I say to you, this is not just for a select few, but this is for anyone who will place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from their sin, they will receive full forgiveness. It's final, it's complete, it's done. It awaits you to trust in it. The third statement. Because of sin, we are unrighteous and guilty. But Jesus justifies and redeems to make us righteous. To make us righteous. Romans 3, 23 to 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, it's interesting. That first statement there is a statement that every person knows about themselves. And yet live to try to convince every other person in the world that it's not true. That's what Paul means when he says the law is written on our hearts and we condemn ourselves. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. And then Colossians 1.14 again. In whom Jesus we have redemption. The forgiveness 
of sins. Friends, if you hear nothing else today, please hear this. God stands ready to forgive you of sin in Jesus Christ. That's how he wants to meet you today. Our next one, because of sin we are enslaved, but Jesus ransoms and rescues us from sin. This is very important for us to understand. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what a ransom is, right? It is something that is paid for the release or for the dispersal of that which was held. And so it tells us that he served, that he himself might become the ransom for those who were enslaved in sin. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 tells us, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, The price that was paid for our sin, that we could be released from its enslavement, could not be purchased with any economic currency of this world. But rather only, how? But with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the reason that you can't do anything to get rid of your sin is because it is an eternal damnation that has immediate consequences in the physical world. Therefore, it required an eternal currency, the precious blood of Jesus. Because of sin... Scriptures tell us that we are dead, but Jesus makes us alive. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, but God. Beautiful words in the Scriptures, are they not? And hear me, before you look any further on the screen, I know you've already read it. Listen to this. If you came here today not knowing a lot about God, but you want to walk away with a characteristic that is as true of God as any. Here it is, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's grace, friends. Do you know what a dead person does? They dead. That's all they do. I mean, it sounds ridiculous that we would have to say that. But that's what they do. That's who we were. We were dead. We didn't do anything for our salvation. There was nothing we could have done. Because spiritually, we were dead. But because of Jesus, because of the Spirit of God, He placed within us, We were made alive unto Him. Again, because of sin, we are alienated from God, completely separated from God. But Jesus reconciles. Ephesians 2.16, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. What hostility? The hostility between us and God. Because of sin, we were God's enemy. You go, well, I never felt of God that way. God felt of you that way in sin. You say, well, that's his problem. Actually not, it's yours. But he solved it for you. Understand this, friends. If you don't know the bad news, the gospel will never be true good news for you. You were God's enemy in sin. But he loved you even then. Even when you were his enemy. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, are you ready for this? The new has come. That, that's not a, it may get here. That's not a, I mailed it. I don't know why you haven't received it. I hope. It will get here. That is a has come. It is a present reality of a past done thing. 
It has come. All this is from God. All, you know how much all, you know what the Greek word for all means there? Yes, you know what it means because I've told this stupid joke over and over again. It means everything, right? You say, well, stop telling the joke if it's that dumb. No, it's good. It's actually a very good joke. And when you start laughing at it, I'll stop telling it. How did he do it? Through Christ, he reconciled us to himself. Reconciled us. He ceased the alienation with God and reconciled us with him. Because of sin, friends, we are enemies of God, but Jesus gives us peace with God. Let's go back to Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20, when it says this, that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's in Christ. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you know why Jesus brings peace within us? Because he has given peace to us. One of the reasons that you do not have peace within yourself outside of Christ is not just because you can't figure you out, but because you've not found God. And until you find God, there will be no peace in you. Because sin destroys peace. And until you have peace with God, you cannot have peace with yourself. But Jesus gives us peace with God and peace within. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the eighth one is this, we die but in Jesus we are resurrected. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his. And listen, Galatians 2 is very clear. It tells us this. That by faith as Christians, we have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And the life we live in the flesh, we live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved us and died for us. So if we die with him in a death like his, which we have by faith, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Potentially, no, certainly be united with him. Why do I emphasize this, friends? Because I want you to understand that Jesus conquers sin completely. In every way that sin damns us to eternal darkness, to eternal deception, to eternal condemnation and punishment, Jesus conquers sin and reverses its curse. In each sin that we commit, in every way that we sin, and to the fullest extent of our sin, in which sin touches us, infects us, and affects us, Jesus completely forgives, cleanses, and redeems that. There is nothing that sin has done that Christ has not completely conquered and undone for you. And God does this for us in Jesus Christ. What we cannot do for ourselves, he puts his Holy Spirit within us, and then he sends us to live out what he has put alive in us. God shapes people by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shapes their life as they take life from him and live out that life. Through him. Listen to me, friends. I need you to hear this. Christianity is not an adherence to a set of intellectual propositions, to a set of emotional stirrings, to any form of volitional values or moral positions. Al Mohler was recently quoted. He is the president of Southern Seminary and one arguably of the greatest Christian minds of our generation, if not in many generations. And he says this, that hell will be filled with people who were avidly committed to Christian values. In other words, what he says is hell will be littered with a lot of people that looked like Christians on earth. You say, well, isn't it your job to scare us, Pastor? No, it's actually not. God's already done that. But he's offered an answer to it as well. 
Listen, Christianity is surely not, not less than these things. But it is so much more. And Christianity, friends, is simply denying trust in oneself that we might follow a person by faith, Jesus Christ. The very essence of Christianity. So understanding who we are, our identity, because of what God has done for us, our salvation, in Jesus Christ through which our relationship come, it changes the way that we understand God, it changes the way we understand self, it changes the way we understand the world, and it changes the way that we understand our purpose in this world. Our new understanding because of Jesus serves as a divine motivation to live and faithful obedience unto God in the world. And so I want you to receive three truths today. Three truths to provide a complete picture not only of our salvation, but also to capture a view of the life that you've received because of Jesus Christ. But before I give them to you, I'm actually going to issue a warning. And here's my warning. That these truths are radically life-altering. Seismic shifts that occur from within that create unimaginable shifts to be lived out in your life. And my challenge to you is simply this. To receive these truths. These are not questionable. We don't have to wonder if they're true. We don't have to wonder if God will be faithful to them. All we must do is believe. And I'm asking you, both Christian and non-Christian alike today, will you believe? Will you believe? These three truths motivate us to live for God's glory. And I would say they shape us as the gospel takes root within us and grows through us. The first one we see as the first phrase of verse 1, for you are sons of the living God. And here it is. In Jesus, I am not who I was. In Jesus, I am not who I was. Would you just let that sink in for a moment? Of everything we just looked at because of sin and in Christ... We understand that who I was, I am not because of what he's done. I don't know about you, but there is a long line of stories that rushes through the back of my mind with a statement like that. And in an instant, I see so many lanes of the past of which none are true of who I am today. And some of that past, to be quite honest, is not very long ago. Because Lane has not become perfect. There are times when sin still rears its ugly head, and yet it never defines me for who I am. Moses begins, you are the sons of the Lord your God. Listen, friends, if, um, if God was giving the Ten Commandments, I mean, for the first time, it's the grand reveal, you know? It's everything. And when it happens, he caught you forging a false idol out of all the gold you could bring together. You're going to feel like the son of God? No, you're going to feel like the son of trash. Why? I mean, right in the big moment, the big reveal, what happens? So when Moses says, for you're the sons of God, it's very feasible for us to understand that these people might have had a moment, just a check in their spirit when they said, I don't know, I don't know. I'm not sure that's true. It's the same check that some of you are having in your heart today when you go, well, I can believe that God loves me, but I don't know that he's going to let me get that close. I don't know that he would love me that much. And I'm telling you, it's not whether or not he might or could or would, but I'm telling you, he has and he does. You see, Paul magnifies the contrast of our change. 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says this, And such were some of you, talking about being bound in sin and sinful lifestyles and practices and activities. And he says this, but you were washed. 
You see, this is what the blood of Christ does for us. It washes us. You are sanctified. You know what sanctified means? It means to take you where you are and to move you where God wants you to be from your inside out. You were justified, he goes on to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, Galatians says in 6.14, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, Christians no longer look to the things of the world for their answers. They no longer look to the things of the world for their pleasure. They don't look to the things of this world for security, for the application of life, for the acceptance in life, and for our identity of life. Because the things of the world are dead to us, and that which was once lived in us is now dead, and that which was once dead in us is now been brought to life within us because of Christ. It's a total change. Friends, Jesus makes your past what is behind you, not what binds you. Jesus makes your sin what is behind you, what is under you, not what rules you. Why? Because Scripture says that those who are in subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, his enemies, he's conquered them and he's resting his foot on them right now. Just before he gives the final twist to finish him off. That's the picture that scripture wants to give you of the sin in your life. Put it behind you. Do not let it bind you. That's what Christ has done for you. Jesus gives us a new heart that makes you a completely new Person And how does he express that? That God's love is most fully displayed in that when he saves, he makes a person a child. Ephesians 1, Paul picks up this idea of being sons of God, the children of God. And he says this in Ephesians 1, In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons. Do you know why adoption is so miraculous? Because it takes an orphan and makes them a son. It takes an orphan and makes them a daughter. Peter says, once you were not a people. Did you know there was a time when there were no Israelites? There were no Hebrews? Go back to Genesis and there was a time when God said to a man named Abram, go out from where you live and go to where I will show you. And that's all the details he had. And the scripture says, by faith, Abram went. And God made a promise to him, the very promise that he's carried out in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that promise is that he would bless him, and as he followed him, he would provide and protect him in every way through this blessing. And he took his name from being Abram, and he made his name Abraham to show him that the promise would come about. And from Abraham and his wife Sarah came a whole nation of Hebrew people who would become the Israelites. Once, Peter says in the New Testament, you were not a people. But God put his finger on a man on the earth and his wife, and he made a people for himself. And it is that people, not only by biological lineage, but by faith heritage that have become his treasured possession. God's doing this thing in the earth, friends. And you, as a Christian, are not what you were because of who Christ is for you. You are not what you were. When God calls you to himself in salvation by faith, he makes you what you were not. And by his grace, what you will never be again. Christian, I must ask you the question, have you reckoned in your mind 
filtering all the thoughts that have been present and put in and now still compete from the world? Have you reckoned in your mind? Have you reckoned in your heart all of the affections and pleasures and, and, and affinities and adorations that were present and then Christ came and filled you and then now those from the world still attack you and, and, and try to deceive you and try to lie to you and try to lure you away? Have you reckoned in your mind and in your heart that you are not who you were? Let me ask it another way. Have you stopped living in the shadow of your past so that it rules you and begun to walk in the light of the glory of God's truth? Have you? In Jesus, I am not what I was. The second truth I want you to walk away with today is this, that in Jesus, I am transformed into God's image. Verse 2 picks up this way and simply says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. One word captures our study in Deuteronomy, and that word is this, it's shaped. It's Shaped. It is a word that helps us understand what God is doing in our lives for glory through mission in the world. So the question we need to ask becomes, how is it that God shapes a life? Well, one way to shape something is outward pressure applied, right? Have you ever seen those little squares that are just rock hard, but when you drop them in a pool of water, like they spread out and become a towel? Have you seen those? Oh, wow, or a t-shirt. I've seen t-shirts done that way. How is that done? It takes incredible hydraulic pressure, PSI, pounds per square inch, and they just press that thing so there is no other molecule left in it, and it is tight and compact as can be. And basically, they conform it to what they want it to be. In our world today, think of this. Think of prison. Prison is an outward conforming where we take on the outside of a person and we press them in and we try to enact change upon them from the outside in. Might I just say, and I said in a political statement, but it is a statistically true statement that prison statistically is one of the most least effective forms of change in human history. I'm not, I didn't say it's not necessary. It's just not effective, right? It's just not effective. But there's a second way for change to come about too. And that's internal change, inward change. It's when something captures the affections, when something captivates the intellect or the desires. And what happens is you begin to respond by living out what has taken place within. You see, God shapes a person through internal transformation that then leads to outward change through attitudes and, and subsequently through actions. And friends, there is only one way for you to conquer a strong, a controlling thought, affection, or volition of the will. Because here's what you'll do. You can control it for a time, but this so often fails. And when you try to control that strong passion within, that, that desire, that affection, that, that ideology that you're so adamant and committed to, or the volition of the will, when you try to control it from the outside, I've seen this so many times in people and so defeating and condemning for them because you harness it for a time, but you ultimately will not gain conquering control over it. And when it reemerges, it is so often more powerful than it was when you first subjected it. And then the condemnation just continues to heap up on higher and heavier and harder in every way. And you wonder, why could this be? But it's because you're only trying to heap control from the outside in order for that internal longing, that internal affection, that internal volitional will or intellectual idea. You can't just try to stop a strong internal leaning. Rather, you must conquer it. And the only way to conquer it is to replace it with a stronger affection, a stronger idea that's greater. 
a stronger volition of the will that's more commanding of your life. And so instead of trying to, to, to replace it or, to, or, excuse me, to stop it, you replace it with a greater one. And what I'm saying to you in this illustration is that God transforms your life in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your things that have captured your heart and captivated your mind and are commanding your life. He transforms your life by faith through the gospel by expunging every other controlling thought, controlling affection, or controlling volition with Jesus who is greater than any other in every way. What I'm going to say to you today is this is a process. It's a process in this world. You see, transformation makes us a new person. This is not questionable. This is guaranteed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new person has a new mind, has a new heart, has new affections, has new desires, and has new wills. It doesn't mean that you've conquered all of the sin that is in you, but it means Jesus has. And as long as you're in Christ, you will have victory over those things. And when you stumble and when you fall and when you make mistakes and you repeat your sins and whatever the analogy may be in that, you know that it never depended upon you in the first place, but Christ is still sitting as Lord over that. And he still offers forgiveness. He still washes you with his blood. He still justifies and sanctifies because of who he is. Doesn't mean that the former you may not show up on occasion. But it does mean that the new you experiences victory because of Christ. Transformation to a new person means that the former you, hear me, that the former you in sin is not you. And it no longer rules you. Just because it shows up doesn't mean it's in control. So I'll return to my first question. Are you going to believe what God has said is true about you? Makes us a new person. Transformation begins in the mind, friends. We're renewed in order to think as God thinks. Paul states, do not be conformed, Romans 12, to any longer to the patterns of this world. What patterns? It's the, it's the patterns of thinking. It's the patterns of acting. But be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. That by testing, there's that word that I say to you, it's a process. The point is not, are you perfect today? The point is, is the trajectory of your life moving towards Jesus Christ? Are you more like him today than you were a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, and when you first got saved? You see, by testing, you may... So you know what testing also means? Or it, it did for me, maybe it didn't for you. Sometimes you fail. And sometimes you succeed. That's the point of a test. Right? But that by testing... You may discern what is the will of God. You say, well, why would God test us? Why would God let us experience those tests? Because he doesn't know what's in us? No, because so often it's only in the midst of the test or the trial that we come to the knowledge that God already has of what is in us. And he wants to show that to us. But he wants to show it in a way that he can also reveal to us his power over it. And I'll tell you, God's got our good in his mind and in his heart from the beginning. So that by testing, you may discern. You know what discernment is? Discernment takes all the clutter and clears it out. So you can see what is really there. So you can discern what God's will is. You know, we get so mad at God because we have to clear things out. I'm saying it's God's grace that we're able to clear things out. Because before Jesus, we don't clear anything out. We just think we've got it all right there in front of us. And we're worshiping everything instead of worshiping the only thing that's worth being worshiped. You may discern the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what perfect. What God is doing is he's transforming your life that you might think the way that he thinks. You see, salvation means that you're learning to think as God thinks. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that our mind is the mind of Christ. That's why the Spirit works within us to discern the things that are of this world and that are of God. He gives us the mind to see those things because we have his 
his mind. We can understand God because he is within us and we can live with the same mindset or the same attitude that Christ had that's exemplified in Philippians 2 when it says, have this same mind or attitude about you that was in Christ Jesus. And what mindset was that? It was one of humility and obedience to the will of the Father in everything. That's what God is doing through us, or in us through transformation. It changes us to think as God thinks. Transformation leads us to live godly, holy lives. Listen, Titus 2, 11 and 12 talks more about this process of sanctification, of growing spiritually in the things of God. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Do you know what training means? It's a process. It's a process. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see, the transformation that God works within us creates a change in the way that we live out our faith. And our lives demonstrate through outward actions the work that God is working within us. And transformation leads us to live godly, holy lives in every way. Transformation changes us into God's image. God is making us like himself into his image. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 tells us, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In Jesus, God is transforming you into his image. I don't expect you to fully grasp that in the next couple of minutes. But we all should be pressing into that for the remainder of our lives. For the remainder of our lives. Have you taken hold of all of Jesus completely with all of you? Let me just offer this counsel to you to help you understand it. That where sin remains ruling in you, Jesus has yet to be applied to you. In your own mind, in your own heart, in your own understanding. But when you apply Jesus to that area of your life, and you trust Him by faith to walk in the light of His glory, and the truth of His word, you will find that he is greater than any affection, than any desire, than any intellectual position, than any moral or volitional action. He is greater. He is greater. In Jesus, you are transformed into his image. The third truth is this. In Jesus, I have a divine purpose to serve on the earth. Moses says, you are a people. He's chosen you as a people for his treasured possession Peter shows that what Moses taught in Deuteronomy thousands of years later is true for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he says, once you are not a people. I am not now who I was because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, I'm transformed into God's image. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. With a divine purpose given to your life on this earth. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. Christian, God has a divine purpose for you in this world. If you're here today and you would not call yourself a Christian, you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And so you would say, I, I, I know the tenets of Christianity. I know some about this Jesus, but I would not call myself a Christian. Might I just offer to you today an understanding that if you want greater purpose and meaning for your life, greater satisfaction within your heart, Christ is the only greater that will be sufficient to satisfy you in every way. 
but by faith in what Jesus has done for you, he will bring that same divine purpose to your life as well. It's not questionable, it's not speculative or contingent, it's done. Ephesians 2.10, verses 1 through 9 of Ephesians chapter 2, tell us about this great salvation that God has made for us. And it culminates in this way, for you Christians, those who have repented of their sins, placed their faith in Jesus Christ, for you are God's workmanship. It's a beautiful word, I don't have time to unpack it right now. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. It's a way of life that God is leading you in. Isaiah says it this way. Here's our divine purpose. Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Peter claims it... uh, proclaims it this way he says your divine purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light he's just saying this look you just need to tell people about this God who has saved you from a dark life into the light of his glory Jesus says this way are you ready you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. God has saved you for a purpose, Christian. It's a divine purpose. And my prayer is simply this, as the worship team returns, that today you'll listen and heed these words. You'll believe them. If you're a Christian, you say, well, how is it that I couldn't believe them if I'm already a Christian? That you could be in some way managing your sin to keep God out of a part of your life. And I I would say to you today that that's the very part that God's wanting to penetrate into today. To bring greater glory, to bring greater wisdom, to bring greater desire, greater volition of the will, whatever the case may be, to bring greater glory in your life. Would you say yes to him? Would you be ready? In the next several weeks, I'm going to begin to address a number of cultural topics, hot topics. And you know where I'm going to draw from to address the cultural hot topics that we're struggling with today? I'm just going to keep walking through Deuteronomy. You know why? Because the cultural issues that we wrestle with in rebellion are the same universal cultural issues that humanity has always wrestled with with a rebellious heart against God and do you know what the answer to those things are that God shapes people through the gospel of Jesus Christ so I conclude with this invitation if you're here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sin and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ I want to invite you to do that today In just a moment, we're going to sing a couple of songs and respond to the Lord. And I want to ask you to prepare to say yes to what the Spirit has been saying to you in your heart. And if you're a Christian, the the, the altar is always open. There will be elders here at the front. We would love to pray with you, to counsel and encourage you. You're welcome to come to the altar and pray uh, with someone if you want to whatever is necessary. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've not been with us before, I want you to know we would gladly receive you and celebrate with you this new faith in Christ that He has born in you today. Let's stand together and sing as we respond to the Lord.